Jesus Begins Public Ministry Part 14 Jesus in Nazareth Next morning, Jesus resumed his instructions. Two of the Pharisees from Nazareth came to him and, in a friendly manner, invited him to go back with them to the school. They had, as they said, heard so much of his teaching in the country around that they were eager to hear him explain the prophets. Jesus went with them. They conducted him to the house of a Pharisee, which many others were assembled. The five disciples were with their master. The Pharisees listened very politely to Jesus while he spoke to them in beautiful parables. His teaching appeared to please them greatly, and they led him to the synagogue, where a numerous audience awaited him. Jesus spoke of Moses and explained the prophecies concerning the Messiah. But whenever he dropped any words from which they might infer that he alluded to himself, they showed displeasure. One of the Pharisees spread for him a repast, and he spent the night with his five disciples at an inn near the school. Next day, Jesus addressed a crowd of publicans who were journeying just then to receive the baptism. He afterward taught in the synagogue, making use of the similitude of the grain of wheat which must die in the earth before producing its fruit. His words displeased the Pharisees, and they repeated their remarks about the son of the carpenter Joseph. They reproached him also for his communications with publicans and sinners, to which Jesus replied with great firmness. Then they took up the Asinians, whom they did not denominated hypocrites, who lived not according to the law. But Jesus showed them clearly that the Asinians were stricter followers of the law than the Pharisees, and so the reproach of hypocrisy fell back upon themselves. It was the question of benedictions that had led to the Asinians. Blessings were in common use among them, and the Pharisees were annoyed at seeing Jesus blessing little children. When, for instance, he was entering or leaving the synagogue, he was stopped by many mothers with their children, and his blessing craved for the little ones. While Jesus dwelt at Nazareth, he had always much to do with the children, who became still and quiet near him. No matter how passionately they cried, his blessing had power to calm them. The mothers, remembering this, now brought their little ones to him, to see whether he had become too proud to notice them. There were some among them who kicked violently, rolling over and over on the floor, as if they had cramps, screaming loudly all the while. But Jesus' blessing stilled them instantly. I saw th something like a dark vapor going out from some of them. Jesus laid his hand on the heads of the boys and gave them the patriarch's blessing in three lines, one from the head and one from either shoulder down to the heart, were all three united. He blessed the girls in the same way, but without laying his hand on them, though he made a sign on their lips. I thought as I saw him do it that it meant that they should not prattle so much. Still, however, it was significant of something else. Jesus passed the night with his disciples in the house of a Pharisee. Part 15. Jesus rejects three rich youths. He confounds many learned men in the synagogue of Nazareth. To the five followers of Jesus, four others were now added, relatives and friends of the Holy Family. I think there was a son of one of the three widows among them, and one from Bethlehem, who had found out that he was a descendant of Ruth, who had married Boaz in that city. Jesus formally received them 
to the number of his disciples. There were in Nazareth a couple of rich families who had three sons. In childhood, these latter had associated with Jesus. They were now quite cultured and well-educated. The parents, who had heard much of Jesus' wisdom and teaching, agreed together that their sons should today hear a specimen of it. He, they would then offer him money to let the young men travel with him that they might profit by his knowledge. The good people had so high an opinion of their sons that they thought Jesus would gladly become their tutor. So the young men went to the synagogue whither, by the connivance of their wealthy parents and the Pharisees, all the learned men of the city had flocked. They were determined to put Jesus to the test in every way. Among these men were a lawyer and a physician, the latter a tall, portly man with a long beard. He wore a girdle and had some kind of a badge upon one shoulder of his mantle. I saw Jesus, on entering the school, again blessing many children whom their mothers brought to him, among them some afflicted with leprosy whom he healed. During his discourse, he was interrupted in various ways by the literati who proposed to him all kinds of subtle questions, but his wisdom silenced them. To the lawyer's speech, Jesus answered most wonderfully from the law of Moses, and when divorce was spoken of, he rejected it entirely. Divorced, husband and wife could never be, but if the former could not in any way live with the latter, he might leave her. Still were they one body, and could not again marry. These words of the Lord greatly displeased the Jews. The physician asked whether he could tell whether a man was of a dry, matter-of-fact nature, or of a phlegmatic disposition, under what planet such a one was born, and simples were good for this or that temperament, and how the human body is formed. Jesus answered him with great wisdom. He spoke of the complexion of some of those present, their diseases and the remedies, and of the human body with a depth of knowledge quite unknown to the physician. He spoke of life, of the spirit, and how it influences the body, of sicknesses that could be cured only by prayer and amendment, of such as needed medicine for their cure, and that in language so profound and yet so beautiful that the physician in astonishment declared himself vanquished and he had never before heard such things. I think he afterward became one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus described to him the human body with all its members, muscles, veins, nerves, and intestines, their special functions, and their various relations one with another, in general terms and yet with such accuracy that his questioner was humbled and silenced. There was an astrologer present who spoke of the course of the stars. He explained how one constellation ruled another, how different stars possessed different influences, and he discoursed upon comets and the signs of the zodiac. Jesus, in most appropriate language, treated with another upon architecture, with others of trade and commerce, with foreign nations, taking occasion at the same time to censure severely the various fashions and frivolities lately introduced from Athens. He condemned likewise the games and juggling now in use among them, which were also spreading through Nazareth and other places. These games were likewise a product of their intercourse with Athens. Jesus stigmatized them as unpardonable, since they that indulge in them look upon them as no sin. Consequently, they do no penance for them, and therefore they cannot be pardoned. 
His hearers were ravished at his wisdom. They begged him to take up his residence among them, offering to give him a house and all that he needed, questioning him also as to why he and his mother had removed to Capernaum. Jesus replied that he could not remain with them, and he spoke of his mission and the duties it imposed. In answer to their question as to why he had gone from among them, he said that it was because of his desire to dwell in a more central locality, etc. But they did not understand his reasons, and they were offended at his rejection of their offer, which they thought a very fine one. They looked upon his words as the offspring of pride, and so they left the school that evening. The three youths, who were about the age of twenty, greatly desired to speak with Jesus, but he would not allow them to do so until his nine disciples were present. That annoyed them. Jesus told them that he insisted upon having witnesses to what he might say to them. When at last they were admitted to an audience, they very modestly and humbly laid before him their own and their parents' wishes that he would receive them as his pupils. Their parents, they said, would remunerate him, and as for themselves, they would bear him company in all his labors. They would serve and help him. I saw that Jesus was troubled at having to refuse their request, partly for their own sake and partly on account of his disciples, for he was obliged to assign reasons for his refusal, which they could not as yet comprehend. He replied to the youths that he who gave money to obtain something aimed at gaining some temporal advantage, but that whoever would follow him must abandon all earthly possessions, must leave parents and friends, and that his disciples must neither woo nor marry. He laid down many other hard conditions, so that the young men became very much discouraged. They argued that many of the Assyrians were married. Jesus replied that they, the Assyrians, acted rightly and in accordance with their laws, but that his doctrine was to accomplish fully that for which theirs only paved the way. With this remark, and bidding them take time to reflect, he left them. The disciples were intimidated by his words. His teaching was so severe that they could not understand it, and they grew faint-hearted. But on the way from Nazareth to Iliads, he bade them not despond, that he had good reasons for talking as he had done, that those youths would only at some distant day, and perhaps never, come to him. But as for themselves, the disciples, they should follow him calmly and be without anxiety, etc. And so they arrived at Eliot's. I do not think he will again go to Eliot's, for great talk and excitement had arisen in Nazareth on his account. The inhabitants were vexed at his not remaining among them. They thought that he had acquired all his knowledge during his travels. True, they said, he is a very clever and extraordinary man, but for a carpenter's son, he is rather conceited. I saw the three young men returning to their homes. Their parents were very much displeased at the objections Jesus made to receiving them. The sons chimed in with the parents, and all talked at random in their indignation against him. On the following day, the three youths went again to Jesus and begged once more to be accepted. They promised him perfect obedience and faithful service. But Jesus again dismissed them, and I saw that their inability to seize the meaning of his refusal troubled him. He spoke then with his nine disciples, who, by his directions, were to go first to a certain place and afterward to John. 
on the subject of those whom he had dismissed, Jesus said that they desired to follow him for the sake of what they might gain, that they were not willing to give all for love, but that they, the disciples, sought for nothing. Consequently, they had been received. He spoke again in significant and beautiful terms of the baptism, telling them to go over to Capernaum and say to his mother that he was going to the baptism. He charged them likewise to speak to the disciples, John, Peter, and Andrew, about John the Baptist, and say to the last name that he, Jesus, was coming. Part 16. Jesus with Eliud in the leper settlement. I saw Jesus journeying with Eliud in a southwesterly direction from Nazareth, but not exactly on the high road. He wanted to go to Chim, a leper settlement. They reached it at daybreak, and I saw that Eliud tried to restrain Jesus from entering it, that he might not be defiled, for, as Eliud urged, if it were discovered that he had been there, he would not be allowed to go to the baptism. But Jesus replied that he knew his mission, that he would enter, for there was in it a good man who was sighing for his coming. They had to cross the Kishon. The leper settlement lay near a brook formed by the waters of the Kishon, which flowed into a little pond in which the lepers bathed. The water thus used did not return into the Kishon. This settlement was perfectly isolated. No one ever approached it. The lepers dwelt in scattered huts. There were no others in the place, excepting those that attended the infected. Eliot remained at a distance and waited for the Lord. Jesus entered one of the most remote huts, wherein lay stretched on the ground, a miserable creature entirely enveloped in sheets. He was a good man. I have forgotten how he contracted leprosy. Jesus addressed him. He raised himself and appeared to be deeply touched at the Lord's deigning to visit him. Jesus commanded him to rise and stretch himself in a trough of water that stood near the hut. He obeyed while Jesus held his hands extended over the water. The rigid limbs of the leper relaxed, and he was made clean. He then resumed his ordinary dress, and Jesus commanded him not to speak of his cure until he should have returned from the baptism. He accompanied Jesus and Eliot along the road till Jesus ordered him to go back. I saw Jesus and Eliot the whole day journeying toward the south through the valley of Esdron. Sometimes they conversed together, and at others walked apart, as if in prayer and meditation. The weather was not very pleasant at that time, the sky dark and fog in the valley. Jesus had no stick, he never carried one, but Eliot had one with a little shovel on it, like those of the shepherds. Jesus wore only sandals, though a kind of perfect shoe, consisting of a thick woven upper of coarse cotton, which was in use at the time. Once I saw Jesus and Eliot at noon, resting by a well and eating bread. Part 17. Jesus Transfigured Before Eliot During the night, I saw them again walking, sometimes together, sometimes separate. And then I witnessed something extraordinary, unspeakably lovely vision. While Jesus was walking on ahead, Eliot passed some remarks upon the symmetry and beauty of his person. Jesus replied, if thou shouldst behold this body two years hence, thou wouldst find it in neither beauty nor symmetry, so greatly will they abuse and maltreat me. But Eliot understood not his words. Above all, he could not comprehend 
while Jesus always spoke of his kingdom as existing so short a time, for he thought ten or even twenty years must elapse before it would be founded. He could not bring himself to think otherwise, since his thoughts were all of an earthly kingdom. When they had gone on a short distance, Jesus paused and bade Iliad, who was following lost in thought, to approach, and he would show him who he was, of what nature was his body, and of what kind his kingdom. Eliot drew near to within several steps of Jesus. And Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed. A cloud, like those seen in a thunderstorm, descended and enveloped both. From without they could not be seen, but over them opened a heaven of light, which seemed to descend toward them. Above I saw a city of shining walls. I saw the heavenly Jerusalem. The whole interior was lit up with a rainbow-colored light. I saw a figure like God the Father, and Jesus, his form perfectly luminous and transparent, connected with him by beams of light. Eliot stood a while gazing upward, as if entranced, and then sank prostrate on his face, in which position he remained until the apparition and the light had melted away. Then Jesus resumed his way, and Eliot followed speechless and frightened by what he had seen. It was a vision like the transfiguration, but I did not see Jesus lifted up. I think Eliot did not live to see the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus was more confidential toward him than toward the apostles, for Eliot was very enlightened and very familiar with many of the mysteries connected with the family of Jesus. Jesus took him as a friend and companion and clothed him with authority so that he did much for his community. He was one of the best instructed of the Assyrians. Jesus' time, the Assyrians did not dwell altogether on the mountains as formerly. They were more scattered throughout the cities. I had that wonderful vision about twelve o'clock at night. In the morning, I saw Jesus and Eliud arrive at a shepherd field. It was daybreak, and the shepherds were already out of their huts and with the cattle. They came forward to meet Jesus, who was known to them. They cast themselves down before him, and then led him and his companions under a shed, where they had their cooking utensils. Here they washed their feet, prepared for them a couch, and set before them bread and little drinking cups. They roasted some turtle doves for their guests. The birds had their nests in the roofs of the huts, and were hopping around in great numbers like hens. And now I saw Jesus dismissing Eliud, who knelt to receive his blessing. Shepherds were present. Jesus told him that he would end his days in peace, that the path which he himself had to walk would be too difficult for him, that he had admitted him to his community, that he had already done his part in the vineyard, and that he should receive his reward in his kingdom. Jesus explained this by the parable of the laborers in the vineyards. Eliot was very grave since the vision of the preceding night, very silent and deeply impressed. I think he was afterward baptized by the disciples. He accompanied Jesus a part of the way from the shepherd field. The Lord embraced him, and he departed with signs of manly emotion. The place to which Jesus was going for the Sabbath could be seen from here. Some of his relatives once dwelt there. The place to which he now went alone was called Gur. It was built on a mountain. Joseph's brother, who afterward removed to Zebulon, and who had frequent communication with the Holy Family, once dwelt there. Jesus went unnoticed to an inn, where they washed his feet and presented him food. He had a chamber to himself. He caused a roll of the scriptures to be brought to him, 
from the synagogue, and out of it he read and prayed, sometimes standing, sometimes kneeling, often raising his eyes toward heaven. He did not go to the school. Once I saw some people going to the inn and asking to speak to Jesus, but he would not see them.